Yep. Don't you love that song, As the Deer Pants for the Water? No, I carve crosses, and I put scriptures on most of them that I carve, and that's I put more of that scripture on the crosses than any of them because, you know, I do what people want. But uh, that's Psalm 42. That's written by the sons of Korah. Isn't that amazing? The sons of Korah. What a word of redemption. You know, I was talking to a guy not long ago, and he was telling me that he was, uh, some time ago, but he was telling me that he had goals in his life, but he had some relatives that said, you're never going to reach it because you're like Uncle Uncle so-and-so, you know, and, and he never accomplished nothing. I thank you, Lord, that we don't have to be concerned about our natural heritage because we have got a rich heritage in you. And it doesn't matter about Uncle George or or Joe or maybe even if, if you had, had, had a dad that, that wasn't very, very good. You don't have to worry about him because God's got a plan for you. And it doesn't have anything to do with the curses of your family. But anyway, the sons of Korah, if I remember correctly, John can correct me if I'm not correct on this. I believe they were doorkeepers in the temple, right? Not what they were. They were doorkeepers in the temple. Somewhere along the line, who they were designated as sons of Korah, Korah had rebelled against God in in the wilderness, and the earth opened up and swallowed him. Swallowed him. But anyway, anyway, I just that song always blesses me. Uh, I was telling I was telling Dan a couple of weeks ago. John had asked me to give a message, and I, I was. I was happy because I already knew what I was going to teach on. <laughs> that usually don't happen. And I told him I was, going to, I was going to teach on or preach on a change of heart. And so he played that for me on the offertory. But I told him today, you know, I knew that I knew that uh, this past week was going to be a busy week because uh, we were uh, going to. Josie's parents' home to celebrate their 60th wedding anniversary with them, and there's going to be a lot of people there. And we were going to be cooking Friday before. We were going to be doing brisket and doing all this kind of stuff Friday before, and then we was going to go set, get up early Saturday morning and go. And so, you know, I had prepared the message. I had, you know, in, in days of old, you always kept your strong concordance, you know, close, you know, and if you don't know what that is, then it's a book about the size of the old family Bibles they used to keep. But now we got Bible Gateway. You know, and so you just put in a word and punch a word. And so I looked up my, all my scriptures, had everything written, had, had my lesson done. And so Thursday, Thursday night, uh, we had, uh, we prepared a meal for our family. Our daughters and our grandkids and our son-in-laws that were here. And so anyway, 
the older boys spent the night with us, and so it was going to be my job to get them up in the morning. And so I woke up in the morning, and I woke up with something on my mind, and it was the revival of 1857. <laughs> and I said, oh, no, I've got everything prepared, and now God has thrown me a curveball, and God doesn't throw curveballs. He doesn't. But I thought that at the time. And, I, and I'm, a, I'm a guy who loves history. And so I knew about the revival of 1857. And so I said, okay, I know God's ways. And so, God, what do you want to do in this? So all of those scriptures, a lot of those scriptures I diligently looked up didn't fit anymore. So I went delete, 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 delete. And so anyway, I'm at the place where I know the beginning of my message and I know the ending. And so I'm going to ride this through and see what God puts in the middle of it. All right. So I want to talk to you a little bit about a change of heart. And God had dealt dealt with me in, on, on some of this about three or four weeks ago. <clears throat> and... Uh, so you, you folks who have, who have been believers for a long time and has uh, had decided in their hearts that they want to follow God and have, you know, all that God has for them, then I can tell you that we go through uh, life with God changing our hearts. I mean, God, Holy Spirit will come and say, I want to take this from you. I want to take this from you. I want to change your heart. And so, in uh, in so I'm going to give you some give you some a few scriptures. Uh, in Matthew five, it says you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bow. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And so one of the things God has told us is that we're salt and light. We're salt and light to the world. And... uh, And so... Uh, if 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 we're living a life for the Lord, then everybody that we spend any time with are going to know that we're different. They should know that we're different. And you know, the world is looking for, and a lot of times they don't know this, but they're looking for a different value set than what they've been living. They, you know, I can remember being being far away from the Lord and thinking, I know that there's something better than this. There ought to be something better than this. Uh, but that's what the what the world is looking for. Uh, John seventeen fourteen says, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world. Even as I am not of the world, even even as I am not of the world, 
So, you know, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And so, uh, I'm going to read you a, uh, in a few minutes, I'm going to read you a, uh, a historical, a Christian historical account of, uh, of a revival. And, uh, it's going to be interesting. You, uh, uh, you know, there, we're in a spiritual war. We're in a battle. And God has equipped us, and he has given us weapons. The Bible says the weapons of our warfare aren't carnal, but they are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. But, you know, we need to know the weapons in our arsenal. And so we have got to know what God says. We have got to know what God says. Several years ago, God told me in dealing with this, he said, you don't need to know chapter and verse. You just need to know. The chapter and verse, whenever you're, whenever you're battling something, the chapter and verse isn't important. I can go to a Bible gateway and get the chapter and verse. But what is important is to know. We have got to know. We have got to know. We've got to know what Jesus has given us so that we can battle, so that we can do battle. You know, we hear people uh, speak of the terrible state of the American church. And so, you know, that's a broad brush. But there, there is some validity to that, but there is to some validity also into knowing the bad state of our country. I'm almost 64, and uh, this isn't the world I was raised in. It's changed a lot. This world has changed. And so we have given away things a little by little, little by little. And Joseph and I were talking about this, and I said, so now we've reached a place where my grandkids who have a park across the street can't walk over to that park by themselves because of the evil that prevails here. But God's given us authority over that. He's given us authority over that. But we haven't walked in it. We have given away things that we shouldn't have given away. Our country, I believe, has lost its moral compass. But you know there's hope because God's got a remnant. God's got a remnant of believers, and I believe that he wants to do something. And I know part of the deal that God was showing me about uh, reading, reading this revival is God's doing something special right here. And so you can look around at this church over the last couple of years, and it's changed. And God's doing some things. I look around now and I say, it's spring break. <laughs> but, <laughs> but God is doing some something in this church and he's changing people. He's changing direction of this church. And I'm excited about it.
I had a friend of mine come into the office the one day that I still work. He said it looked, took me a long time because I had to, I kept calling you never were here. And I finally said, well, what day are they here? And they said, well, here Tuesday if you, if you don't wait too long. <laughs> but he came and he was, he was, uh, he was telling me that he was, uh, reading a book and I forget the name of the book and the author, but he gave me the gist of the deal. And he said, in, this was written by a pastor. And he said, uh, generally in the church today, you've got two types of people. You've got the fans and you've got the players. And he said, and of course, it, that, that's a, a sports analogy. And so uh, he said, the fans typically in sports are people who never really played the game. And so they don't know what it takes really to play the sacrifices, the skills and all that. But then you've got players. God never intended us to be fans. You know, I'm not saying that everybody's got to do something in the body that God has put them in, but God has something for everybody to do, whether it's outside the body that God has, has brought them to or within, within the church. But one of the reasons God said don't forsake the assembly together is because, and this is where the church needs to be, is we need to love one another like a family because we're blood relatives but tied together by the blood of Jesus. And so we love one another, we care for one another, we pray for one another, we stand with one another. And so that is the the intent. Everywhere you look, God relates to us as family. My brother, my sister. But here's another deal. I, I always I told you I always try to do one joke. Ronnie shamed me and did did two one time. But but and John, don't get too excited. This is going to end up good. Uh, there was this guy that went into a bar. He went to the bartender and he said, <laughs> he said, give me three beers and open them up. He said, well, you know, beer go flat after they're open. He said, well, I want you to open them up. And so he took the three beers, went and sat down. He took a drink out of one, put it down, took a drink out of another, and put it down, took a drink out of another, and put it down. So he did that until he finished those three beers and got up and left. They said, well, that was odd, you know. And so he came in the next week, same same day. They're always on Friday. He said, give me three beers and open them up. Okay. So he did. said, I'll bring them to you. You go sit down and bring them to you. I said, okay. So he brought them over there and he said, now I'm curious why you do that. He said, well, I said, I've got two brothers. One of them is, uh, both of them have served in combat in the Middle East. 
And so we made an agreement that if we could, we always drank a beer together on Friday night. And if we could, then every Friday night, we would drink three beers, one for each one of us. So, okay, well, that makes, that makes a little bit better sense. And so if, I, know, I know that nobody here knows that but me and my brother Dennis, this but me and my brother Dennis. But any time you go to a local bar and you, and you, uh, and you attend that establishment pretty regular, then the bartender makes sure that everybody knows your business whether he knows it or not. So it didn't take long for everybody in the bar to know why this guy did this. So one day he came in and he said, give me two beers. And the bartender said, okay. He said, I'll bring them to you. So he opened two beers and came up to him and he said, man, I want to tell you how sorry I am for your loss. And he looked at him and said, huh? He said, oh, no, 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 no. That's not what it is. He said, this past week they, the Baptist had a revival, and me and my wife got saved, and we can't drink anymore, but I don't, don't push my beliefs on my brothers. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I ask you a question, why is that so funny? Because it's so true. <laughs> we can always make excuses. We can always make excuses for uh, for not doing what God wants to wants us to do. And you know, I, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm not telling nobody not to drink beer, drink a beer every now. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm what I'm saying is that this is funny, but it's a lot of things that are so funny is because they're so true. Okay. Now, I'm going to read you an account of the uh, revival in New York that started in New York City in 1857. So this is pretty interesting. And as I re read this, I thought, oh, my gosh, this could be Midland. But anyway, the years leading up to 1857 were characterized by tremendous economic growth and prosperity in the United States. There was a population boom, and many people were becoming wealthy. The focus of many was on this world, and as a result, there was a deep decline in spiritual life. Materialism had become a pervasive force throughout the land. Young people were growing up without God, and many were captivated by the love of money. Churches suffered serious decline in attendance. The population growth of New York City began to force the wealthy residents out of the downtown area where they were replaced by unchurched masses of working class laborers. Many churches moved out of the city to accommodate their members. There was a 48-year-old businessman named Jeremiah Lampfear. Who, was, uh, who had been saved in 1842, so he'd been walking with the Lord about 15 years. For years, he had been under the preaching of Reverend James W. Alexandria of the 19th Street Presbyterian Church in New York City. In his preaching, Alexandria emphasized, emphasized the necessity of the special work of the Holy Spirit 
in salvation as well as the effectiveness of prayer. Lamper prayed and asked God, Lord, what will you have me do? He gave up his business and devoted himself to inner city evangelism work. He got a little discouraged. Things weren't working out the way he thought they would. But he found comfort in personal prayer and sensed God's guidance to begin a weekly prayer service at noon for workers and business people to call upon God and to pray for a spiritual awakening. He challenged these men who were engaged in thriving businesses to provoke to devote a portion of the time usually given to rest and refreshment at midday to devotional purposes. So they like to nap at noon. That's not all bad. For many weeks, he handed out pamphlets that announced Wednesday as a day of prayer, noon to 1 o'clock, for those who could spare five minutes to an hour. One man showed up. At twelve thirty, and by the end of uh, end of the uh, hour, there was six of them. It was total of six. The next week, twenty showed up. The next week, forty. They decided to meet daily because the meetings were becoming so powerful. Soon the building was full. I had heard that about at this point in the revival and another deal that I had read, God had really begun to show up. He said sailors coming into the harbor at New York sometimes would fall on their knees and repent because the power of God was so strong in that. They prayed for salvation of souls. They sang and exhorted one another. There was no preaching. They prayed by name for the souls of their family, their neighbors, and their co-workers. Then came an economic crash. It forced thousands of merchants into bankruptcy. Banks fell, and railroad companies went under. Rural companies were the oil companies of the day. Uh, in New York City alone, 30,000 people lost their jobs. In addition to the financial crisis, the nation was gripped with tensions over slavery. Sharp dissensions and even civil war loomed on the horizon. Participation at the prayer meeting increased so much during this period that by mid-November, Two lecture rooms had to be used, and both were full. At the beginning of the following year, 1858, it was so crowded that in an effort to accommodate the increasing number, three prayer meetings were held in rooms on different floors of the same building. Many who attended <clears throat> did not profess to be religious, <clears throat> but they came under <clears throat> they came under conviction of sin and were saved. Soon they started prayer meetings in other church buildings in downtown New York City. In March 1858, a noon prayer meeting was started in a large theater. Half an hour before the announced time, it was filled to capacity. 
because the majority of the attendees were businessmen, they started prayer meetings in public buildings, offices, stores, their workplaces. Sounds like God, huh? Yeah. Uh, in uh, November 1857, Theodore Kuehler, who was pastor of the Ninth Street Church, New York City, said he was struck with the earnestness of petitions for the descent of God's Spirit on our city and churches. Now, you'll notice that the pastor didn't have a whole lot to do with this. That these were uh, working men and women. Uh, There was a newspaper editor. His name was Horace Greeley. Coined the term, go west, young man, go west. He worked for the New York Tribune. He sent a reporter with a horse and buggy to ride from one prayer meeting to the next to see how many men were praying. In one hour, he could only get to 12 meetings, but he counted more than 6,000 men. According to some eyewitnesses, within six months' time, these noontimes meetings were attracting 10,000 businessmen, all of them confessing their sins and praying for revival. A landslide of prayer began. Other U.S. cities followed the same pattern. Soon a common midday sign on business premises would read, We will reopen at the close of today's prayer meeting. In cities such as Cleveland and St. Louis, thousands of people packed downtown churches three times a day just to pray. There were 6,000 people in attendance in Pittsburgh. Daily prayer meetings were held in Washington, D.C. at five different times to accommodate the crowd. Many ministers began having nightly services in which to lead men to Christ. People were converted at least at times 10,000 people per week in New York City alone. Edwin Orr relates the story of a visiting merchant uh, to New York City who was selecting goods when the noon hour came. He requested the wholesaler to work through the noon hour so that he would be able to return to Albany by the evening riverboat. But the response was, no, I can't help that. I have something to attend that is more important than the selling of goods. Man, (laughs) I must attend the noonday prayer meeting. It will close. I said, I will close at 1 o'clock, or it will close at 1 o'clock. It will be over at 1 o'clock, and I will then fill out your order. They both attended the meeting, and the visiting merchant was saved. When he returned to Albany, he immediately started a noonday prayer meeting in that city. The revival spreads. The revival movement spread through New England. Church bells would bring people to prayer at 8 in the morning, at 12 noon, at 6 in the evening. In Chicago, the churches had a waiting list for people who want to teach Sunday school, who wanted to teach Sunday school class. Now, that's a miracle. The revival spread all across America, and pastors were baptizing 20,000 people per week. The Baptist reported that so many people had to be baptized that they couldn't get them all in the building. 
hang on just a second. I printed this out this morning. That's not the last page, but it's close. Anyway, what they had to do was they had to uh, go cut the ice in the river and take the people and baptize them in the river. And that was cool. But the revival spread overseas. It said in the United Kingdom at the time, they were expect, they they estimated that over 10 million people got saved. And this revival, they in the United States, they estimated 2 million people got saved. And out of this revival came people like Moody and Spurgeon and those guys that were born out of this revival. And so how many more did this reach? And so... Uh, I think one of the keys keys to this revival would be the key to any revival is the prayer that Jeremiah Lemper prayed, God, what would you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And so uh, I was thinking about this. And so I thought, what could I believe God for in terms of revival? You know, and I'm sure that these guys weren't even thinking about revival. They began, they just, we want to do something for our city because, you know, all the, all, you know, everybody is seeking the wealth of this world. And you know their their spiritual plight is is dire, and so they were obedient to God, and the revival sprang up, and they began to see a difference in people's lives, a difference in the way they they lived, and they said, "I want some of that." So. Uh, So I think as uh, as believers, we should be crying out to God saying, God, what would you have me to do? What would you have me to do? You know, I think one of the deals in America, we worry too much about what other people are doing. Or we'll see somebody that, man, he was successful. I need to do that. Well, we need to be call- calling out to you, God, God, what would you have me to do? I think we even do that when we pray for people. If somebody comes with prayer and I said, and you think, well, somebody, oh, Joe, he prayed for this guy, and this is what he did, the scriptures he used. But that was for that instance. God is God of the instant, Amen. you know? He's the God of right now, you know? And so our prayer should always be, God, what would you have me to do? And so I think one of the first things that we need to do, we need to understand, come to an understanding of who we are in Christ. And the authority God has given us, what God, what the price that Jesus has paid for us. You know, in Romans, Romans 8 and 1, Paul had been talking in Romans 7, you know, Romans 
8, 1 starts off, therefore. And so, you know, you wouldn't start a conversation. I wouldn't walk up to John and say, John, therefore. Huh? Therefore what, you know? But Paul had been talking in chapter 7 about, uh, about the law. And so, and, and I'll start in Romans uh, 7, 21. says, I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin, therefore, <laughs> there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, so one thing that I have, have, have noticed uh, in the church over the years, me included, Sometimes we get hold of the truth, and we take it way over here, or we take it way over here, where the truth is in in the middle, in the center. We need to know that there is now no there is now no more no more is there condemnation to me, because I have been saved by the blood of Jesus. So there is no condemnation. For me, and so condemnation will come and tell you there's no hope for you. Do you know who you are? What you've done? There is no hope for you. That's condemnation. There is therefore there. Therefore there is not any of that in anyone in here that calls Jesus Lord. There's always hope. Now in John 15, Jesus was saying. You know, it's expedient that I go to the Father because I'll send you the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit will do, he will convict us. Now, that's different. The Holy Spirit will come and say, you know, I want to take that, that thing that you've been doing and I want to deliver you from that. You know, we should run and embrace that, you know, because the Holy Spirit is coming and saying, I'm going to deliver you. From this thing that so hampers you. And John was talking about. Uh, what were you talking about? Uh, I'm sorry I lost my train of thought. But John was talking about something up here. I heard him. Uh, uh, all right. Let me go back here. Oh, John was talking about up here about sowing seeds. And so that's the deal where deal of of whenever we're in a place that we don't need to be is we sow seeds. And sometimes I pray for a crop failure <laughs> because of the seeds that I've sown. But we do do sow those seeds. Then we have to deal with stuff. 
But, you know, I've also found that in my life, and, and I, spoke, I, I talked a little bit about this earlier, in my life, there's always things, times that, that I'm walking through God saying, I want to change this. I want to change your heart. I want to change your heart. I want to change your heart. In Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, this is always a scripture that has always spoke to my heart. When Isaiah was calling to the, being called to the office of prophet, and and he had he had, he had uh, God said, "Who who will I send? Who will I send?" And so he said, "Woe is me! I'm a man of unclean lips." He was convicted, and so. An angel of the Lord came, placed burning coal on his lips, and he changed for that to say, when God said, whom shall I send? He said, send me. I want to go. Send me. I believe we have Two enemies in our in our walk with the Lord. Two enemies. One of them is Satan. And I've got some scriptures for you. I mean, Satan has no authority over you. He's been defeated. And then we have the soul. The scripture says the soul is being saved. But you know what? Before we came to Jesus... We were ruled over by our soul. You want to know how your soul reacts, look at a baby. I want it and I want it now. And if y'all aren't coming fast enough. <laughs> what are y'all doing? Don't you know that I want this now? But that's basically the soul. That is the soul. And so... uh when Satan came to Eve, I was telling John a couple of weeks ago, I said, it's amazing I've never seen this, that she wasn't surprised that a snake was talking to her, you know. But uh, when Satan was tempting, tempting Eve, he uh, said, well, you know why? God don't want you to eat from this tree. You'll be like him. Appealing to the soul. Oh yeah, my mind, my will, my emotions. Well, God thought God loved me. Why would he withhold? Something so good. I can see it. It looks pleasing. Now he didn't say, I don't know how many trees they had. He didn't say, he said you could take of the 99,999 it's just this one here. You can even partake of this tree over here that's got the tree of life if you want to. But not just the one. So he convinced Eve that God had slighted her and was withholding something that she would like. 
And that's what he does today to us. That's one of the lies he tells us. I like the scripture in Philippians 4 when he's talking about the two ladies who couldn't get along over something, whatever it was. And Paul responds to that with rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known. Be made to God in the peace of God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, I read this scripture about let your gentleness be known. And so whenever we were in Ozona, Josie's parents have been married for 60 years. They've gone to the same church for 60 years. Ain't that, that's a miracle right in there. Josie's dad is a role model for me. He's somebody I know that God placed in my life. And he sets an example for me. He is quiet. He is gentle. In the 37 years that Josie and I have been married, I've never heard an unkind word come from him. I've never heard him say anything bad about anybody. And so one of my fellow brother-in-laws and a grandson was sitting next to me. And they looked over and they said, you know, Dad doesn't ever change, does he? And I thought, well, I'm sure that God always is continuously changing his heart or he wouldn't still be the man that he was. But I can see how he got there because he never speaks bad of anybody. Josie has a story, and so I'm not going to do a whole lot of stories today, I told myself. But anyway, Josie has this story about uh, whenever they were kids and mom ruled the roost. If you knew mom, you know how mom ruled the roost. And so she told her dad, she said, I want you to take Josie in the bedroom. I want you to wear her out. And so... Dad says, okay. So he takes Josie in the bedroom. He pulls off his belt. And he said, now, I'm going to whip the bed. And you cry, okay? (laughs) (laughs) He whipped the bed. So he took the belt. Bam, bam. And Josie said she started crying like, like, like it was almost killing her, you know. But look at the man's heart. I can't do that. (laughs) But anyway, gentle, be a gentle, gentle, gentle person. You know, being a believer and working with others who are believers doesn't mean that we will always agree. Huh, Ronnie? (laughs) But you know what? We can always agree to always love each other. We can We can always come to the place where we say, I think more of you 
than I do of whatever it is that we're having this disagreement on. I think God told me one time when I was getting mad at somebody, he said, you don't have enough friends to be alienating people. <laughs> I said, you know, you're right, Lord. We should never allow our disagreements to hinder what we are going, what we are doing for God. And so, talk to you for just a minute about that. Uh, so, is there a price that we can put on a relationship? There's not, is there? Sometimes the old soul raises up and says, you know, you've been wronged. But is there a price that we can put on a relationship? I, I always try to share this because in, in, it's tragic. And i got a guy that I know, he's not a believer, him and his son got into it. And his son left, went to live in Washington State. And I asked him a couple of times, Tom, don't you think you need to take care of that? I mean, you know, that's your son. Well, he's wrong. You know what he said to me? I said, does it matter? Well, yeah, it matters. That was disrespectful. My son went in for some minor knee surgery. They put him under and he didn't wake up. So... Years ago, as my parents was growing, was growing old, <clears throat> and and I always had a good relationship with my parents. It was nothing that I was holding against them or anything. But the Lord said, as you get older, you need to let me mend those fences, to fix those relationships, you know, not only with family but with friends and everybody, you know, the people you had a relationship that there was odd, you know. And the Bible talks about forgiving and how important forgiveness is, but there is also the mending of a relationship. I can get mad at Corey and I can forgive Corey, but there's sometimes something still there. And so, that's where we come to the place where we go to God and we say, Change my heart. God, change my heart. I was, I was, uh, I do a lot of walking now that I'm retired. And so my, my first walk in the morning is my time that I devote to the Lord. We walk, and I pray, I try to listen to what God is, is telling me. And I was coming to the end of my walk one day. About a half a mile away, and God said, I want to change your heart. Okay? <laughs> he said, so ask me to change your heart towards Josie. I said, Josie and I got a good marriage. He said, Lord, change my heart. Lord. Changed my heart towards Josie. Said, uh, 
How about your earthly brothers and sisters? God changed my heart towards Nita, towards Dennis, towards Gary. I got a long list. <laughs> Kyle and Vicky. Lord, changed my heart towards them. Church family. God changed my heart towards my church family. Down the list we go. Down the list we go. And down the list we go. And by the time I got home, I knew something had happened. I knew something had happened. And so, and so God wants to do a work in us. I've got some more scripture here I don't think I'm going to do. I was, I was, you know, I tend to like to know how, how things work, so sometimes I ask God, why, why did you have me to say that with Josie? And he don't always answer me, because I'm God, I guess. And he's God and I'm not. And, uh, and so, here's what I believe that he told me. He took me back to the time right after Josie and I were married. And this is funny, I'll laugh about this. We hadn't been married for probably four or five months. And I said something. It made Josie mad. <laughs> and so all four foot eleven, ninety pounds of her started at me and I was laughing. And when she got close I just took my hand out. <laughs> and she beat my arm to pieces. I mean bam, 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 and I was laughing, and the more I laughed the harder she swung. And so she wore herself out. And so we still laugh about that. That's okay. But maybe there's times that people, whether it's my wife or whoever, say some things that we forgive them and the relationship, the relationship is good and but maybe those words spoke still come up every now and then. Or maybe what they did. Well, you know what they did? You know, they took advantage of me. Or this or that. And I think that this would this is where this comes in. Change my heart, God. Change my heart. So, just stand up for a minute. Now, there's something about speaking things. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you maybe where some place that God needs to heal your heart. You guys and gals that are married, you know, that's one of the places that the devil really attacks these days. You know, my my in-laws married for 60 years. You don't see that very much. Guys that are married, ask God to change my heart toward 
every spouse just. But think about it and just think, God, change, change my heart, God. Change my heart. Hallelujah, God. Hallelujah. Change my heart, Lord. Change my heart. Hallelujah. You know, whenever we come to the Lord, I believe, and there's scriptures that God talks about changing the heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Hallelujah. He can change your heart because he's already changed your heart to a heart of flesh. Thank you, Lord. Lord, just change some relationships, Lord God. Change relationships between husbands and wives, Lord God, so that they can truly, truly become one, Lord. Hallelujah. Father, teach teach us men, Lord God, how to love our wives, Father. Thank you that we would lay down our life for them, Lord God, that whatever, whatever our plans Whatever we think that we want to do or need to do, we lay those aside because you told us to love our wives the way Christ loved the church and laid down his life. Teach us, God, how to lay down our life. Thank you, Lord. Father, show us those places, Lord God. Show us those places, Lord God, meaning from long ago, Lord, that those thoughts keep coming up about something that was said or done, Lord. Lord, heal us of that so that we can get beyond that and it won't matter anymore. Lord God, that we can walk in that beyond the forgiveness, Lord God. Beyond the forgiveness. Thank you, Lord. Father, I thank you for what you're doing here at Living Way Church, Lord God. Brother, I know you got a plan you got a plan, Lord God. And Father, that we will come to that place where we say, God, what would you have me to do? Pray for revival, Lord God. Begin it in this body of believers, Lord God. And let it go out into the city, Father. Hallelujah, God. Father, that those who need you will be saved. Those who are oppressed will be set free. I know, God, that you want to deliver us from those things, Lord God, that harm us. Thank you, Lord. Father, begin with setting our hearts free, Lord God. Creating us, God, a new heart. Thank you, Lord.
Sir, can you put on that song again? We'll just kind of walk out to it. I'm not going to have us sit and listen, but uh, just change my heart, oh God. I hope you've heard the Lord speak to you um, this morning. That He's He's messed around with you a little bit, because when He does, it's good. Amen. If you want to go to home group, see Ronnie Maven tonight. They're meeting tonight at six. Change my heart. 